everyone. Welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and I'm really excited about the episode today. Um, as you likely know, if you have read or listened to anything that I have produced in this venture, I am an amateur, uh, and people have brought out to me before that the uh, etymology of the term amateur means someone who loves something and is actually not in reference to being not a professional, but that you have a passion or a deep abiding interest in something. And today's guest is uh, exactly the same way. His name is Mike McCaffrey. He runs a blog called Haydn Seek. The website is www.fjhaydn.com. Mike McCaffrey, he is a music historian, Haydn expert. Uh, he tells me that he loves music and he loves history. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about his interest or perhaps even obsession with Haydn. Now, uh, when we chatted, we did so for about three hours, give or take. So today's episode is the first part of our conversation where I uh, asked him the most pressing questions uh, about Haydn. And then later on in the conversation, we continued with more detailed stuff. But I have to say... Listening to Mike talk about Haydn is like listening to a guy who lived next door to him. Obviously, not the case. Uh, so let's get started with the episode. I really enjoyed um, this conversation, and he convinced me of a number of things throughout our conversation. Let's go. I have with us Mike McCaffrey. How are you? I'm well, Alan. Thank you. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing well. I, um, I came across your very, very detailed website doing some research for Haydn um, and the memorable Haydn Seek name. How did, yeah. uh, how, did, how did that get started? Well, it was, uh, I've always, it, it, beyond it being a pun, which I, I like puns in any case, uh, my actual intent when I was beginning this blog was to find Haydn. I um, always liked his music. Uh, I found that it, uh, unlike my, my easily satisfied knowledge vacuum for Mozart or Beethoven, uh, it was much more difficult to find any easily understandable information about Haydn. So uh, I took it as a challenge, and uh, I felt like I, I could, at some point in time, I could get enough information to pass on to other people who were in the same situation I was in. That's that's actually kind of fantastic to hear. That's um, the 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 blog that that I started. Um, I, I avoided Haydn actually for for a time because with um, 68 string quartets and over 100 symphonies and all the rest, it was a little bit intimidating to think of kind of where to start. And so a couple of years ago, the first few works of his that I did, you know, as you would, I started with number one, number two, number three. And in that process, I found out that number, I think, 37, you know, was, was around one of the earliest. And so then it was a little bit yeah. <laughs> confusing to kind of go, oh, hold on a minute. And and I was kind of in that in that same boat of 
there, there's apparently it's not nearly as as clean and, and straightforward as people think. So uh, recently, I found uh, your website, and yes, the I, I enjoy the pun, and and my my fugue for thought is a kind of a, a similar sort of pun. Um, there's a ton of information on there but because of the kind of what you said the lack of sources where did you end up finding information for your research well as it turns out everything is out there it's just so widely spread out and um uh the books that it's uh you know hidden away in are not readily available to a non-musicologist uh, right. Such as myself, I I, um, I don't have a background as in musicology. Uh, I just have an interest in music and, uh, coincidentally, a, a large interest in history. So uh, it was a natural thing for me to uh, put the history of music as one of my, <laughs> you know, one of my main interests. Well, awesome, because um, it. it was a thing that not, not just kind of getting, you know, getting the numbers in order and finding out about the, you know, all, all the works. Um, but it's, it's a considerable farther period in time from, like you said, uh, Mozart or Beethoven that, that kind of, in, I guess, have a lot more written about them. Um, and, and so this, this interest in, in Haydn's work has prompted, I saw, I think there's, is it in six parts, the, the listing, the chronological listing of the symphonies? Yes, I broke it into six parts because <laughs> I think that was a, a reasonable uh, chunk of information uh, at any given time. And, you know, I consider that there are six basic periods in, in, in Haydn's symphonic output, uh, you know, his pre-Estahazi and then the early Esterhazy works before Sturm und Drang. Right. And uh, right. Uh, then uh, post that, uh, his theatrical works of the 1770s. And then uh, beginning in 1780, his commercial work uh, through the Paris symphonies. And then finally, you know, the London symphonies as a discrete group. Right. And, and, so one of my questions then in, in listening to, um, you know, the earliest symphonies, number one, number four, number 25, those things, is it, is it that, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about a conversation you and I had about, uh, you know, progression and development, but is it that the early symphonies are just kind of, I don't want to use the term insignificant, or is it just that the later symphonies are such works of genius? that causes their well, own to be neglected. And that's, that's one of those, those questions that I, I, you know, I've tried to answer for myself. And I feel as though given, if you, if you take the context in which they were created, which was that uh, there was no symphonic tradition in 1757 or 1756, uh, there were uh, Italian overtures for operas um, which were, were pretty pervasive, uh, even uh, extending up into Germany. And, and in Germany itself, uh, in Mannheim, there, there were uh, attempts to, to write symphonies, and they included things like a minuet, for example. And Haydn's earliest works, 
draw from both of those traditions. Uh, there are some uh, four movement uh, symphonies with a minuet, and there are some uh, uh, more three three movement symphonies in the Italian style. I think that uh, there are they are not insignificant in, in any way. You can tell. The first time I listened to Symphony Number no. One, for example, right, I knew it was Haydn. Uh, you know, I mean, right from his earliest times, Haydn established his identity as a, as a composer, and and even though he developed over time, he certainly did that. But but the the uh, musical ideas and his means of developing them was present right from the beginning. It was merely a a question of developing his use of the tools uh, of, of composition, uh, which, which made the difference. Uh, however, that difference is that turning point where he was so much more competent that, that he could take his ideas and express them and, and develop them to what we call a genius level. Right. And, and was part of that, you think, let's say for the symphonies, for example, was part of that kind of him um, developing confidence as a composer? Because, you know, there's a time when Haydn, I, I recall reading, was, you know, kind of freelancing in his, his early 20s. He did, some, he did some singing and he did some other kind of performing. Um, was it kind of feeling, you know, getting sea legs? Well, I, I think that's the case, yes. Uh, he... Uh... Uh, he certainly never lacked for confidence. I mean, if if you read any of the the few documented things from from him, he um, he always knew that he was doing good stuff. And, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a if if you look around and and you you have a a talent, an obvious talent, and then you look around and and see what other people are doing in your time you can you can judge yourself against that and right. and, and i'm sure he did that and he didn't lack confidence but uh you know to some extent he, he uh knew he understood that he, he lacked some of the skills that he needed and, and he needed to work on that uh you you can see quotes from him where he was very grateful for his exposure to Niccolo Porpora in uh, 1754, who uh, taught him the actual essentials of of actual composition, and right. in addition, teaching him how to how to write for the voice and uh, how to how to write accompaniment for the voice, which is what he was doing there. He was uh, Porpora's valet and. Uh, he played the keyboard for Porpora's voice students so that they could sing. And uh, he got his ears boxed and he <laughs> got yelled at and uh, all those things. But he was very grateful for it uh, because he learned. I mean, that, that point in 1754 kind of marks a turning point in his output and his capabilities. Uh, from that point on, I think he, he had every confidence in himself. And, uh, you know, part of the problem that we run into when we look back on, oh, seven, I mean, Mozart was born in 1756. So and that right. was that was probably the year that the string quartet was born. 
you know, it, it's an odd coincidence there, but, uh, yeah, it's you know, if, yeah, if there's no, uh, if there's nothing else, uh, to compare yourself to, I mean, if you're just writing something, you know, uh, sui generis and, and, uh, you, you end up with, you know, okay, well, I did this and my friends had fun playing it, but I don't know where this is going. And, you know, it was only later on when, when there was a demand for him to write more and, uh, all of a sudden, uh, manuscripts were turning up all over central Europe of, of people playing this and that he, that he realized that, Hey, this was pretty good. It's a hit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so, so some of the kind of his, his environment, once he, for example, certainly once he got to the Esterhazy, the, um, the palace, was some of it was a result of his isolation, I guess, right? That he kind of did his own thing? Well, I, I would say from that point forward, yes, that, right. would, be, that would be the case, yes. He, uh, he, was, he was isolated, but, but on the other hand, I think that, that is exaggerated to some extent, too, because oh, yeah? Eisenstadt, uh, where, where he was living for the first, say, the first five years that he worked uh, for the Esterhaza family, uh, is only 30 miles from Vienna. <laughs> I didn't not, realize that. Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't either until I went to Google Maps and, and checked it out. And I said, what? It's only a few kilometers. I mean, it, it may have been a, you know, a half day's journey, but, right. uh, you know, the, the prince had a, had a palace in Vienna and, uh, spent a considerable amount of time there. And, uh, you know, cause they had to, the, the aristocracy had to go to the, to the capital in the winter for, it was their duty, you know, right. uh, to be at the, uh, available to the emperor or the empress in this case. And, uh, so he spent winters in Vienna and, uh, you know, he was exposed to other people there. Uh, his brother was in Vienna at the time, Michael Hyden. Yeah, uh, true. And they uh, they both wrote uh, uh, for well even uh, before Esterhaza, but but Morton was also required to go to Vienna in the winter, and uh, so uh, you know he wrote music for the um, Berg Theater, for example, and uh, uh, you know he knew all the musicians in Vienna. So when he got hired by Paul Esterhazy, he he had. Um, uh, a great number of contacts there amongst the musicians. And, you know, one of his first duties was to hire, hire some players for the orchestra. Well, he knew who to hire. He knew who was a good player because, you know, he had that sort of contact, which is underrated in terms of uh, uh, learning and teaching and, and spreading, you know, the word about yourself. So, so actually, uh, I don't think that he was as isolated as he could have been. I think he felt isolated. Uh, you know, he was at the prince's beck and call. Sure. And if he wanted to go to Vienna, the prince may say, okay. But he may <laughs> very well say, no, it doesn't suit my convenience. You, you, you need sure. to stay here. And and what about this prince? I, I understand him to be um, someone who who really liked music and was just kind of had this insatiable desire to hear more music. Obviously, all music of the time was live. There was no YouTube or radio or anything. So, you know, was that kind of the 
the condition under which he was employed? How much, um, how much of Haydn's music do we have to thank the Prince for? Well, I would say that uh, from 1761 until 1780, I would say 100% of his music, with the possible exception of the string quartets from Opus 9 through 20, which I believe Haydn wrote for himself. Sure. Uh, uh, the Prince never indicated, you know, you really should write me some string quartets. <laughs> was no, there's no, absolutely no record in the Estehazy archives of, of uh, uh, string quartet playing. Huh. Uh, there's nothing dedicated to the Prince. I think that, that uh, the quartets were part of Haydn's internal uh, need to write something on his own, much the way that uh, Mozart's uh, string quintets, for example. He didn't write those. I mean, he would have loved to sell them and get them published and, and make sure. money on them, but he didn't write those for that purpose. He wrote those for himself uh, to challenge his art. Right. And, uh, um, you know, he had a difficult time getting them published for precisely the reason that we like them so much. <laughs> reason that put off publishers at the time they were too difficult they were they were uh, difficult intellectually as well as difficult to play uh you know and, and publishers were looking for things that that were easy so they could sell them for a quick buck i'm sure when artaria uh, uh bought and eventually sold uh mozart's uh quintets he, he knew he wasn't going to sell very many of them <laughs> He did it because he wanted the other music, you know. Right. Well, so what about you? You mentioned earlier the in the the middle of the 18th century there was no symphonic tradition. There were there was um, tradition for overtures and opera and other things. Um, so so what was Haydn working from from the standpoint that you know kind of the understanding or the way I would explain it to people is that the, the symphony comes from the tradition of um, the dance suite with the prelude. And like you said, there's a minuet and then the final jig, all of that. Where did Haydn get his idea for this is what a symphony is, be it three movements or four and the fast, slow, fast. Where does that come from? Well, this is, this is still not completely clear, but uh, a big part of it has to do uh, with, um, the Italian overture, I think, is probably the single most influential part of that uh, that, that that drove him that way. And um, you know, I'm sure that he was looking at entertainment music. He was not looking at you know that we we think symphony. You know, uh, automatically you're thinking Beethoven. You know, sure, but but. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't looking at at the centerpiece of a concert. He was looking at entertainment music, uh, symphonies at the time, and, and for for decades thereafter, were throwaway music. They, they were put out there to to kill time. You know, you'd open a <laughs> concert with with uh, symphonic movements and uh, or uh, open an opera, or you'd you'd play them to kill time during the intermission. Uh, so it's it yeah. was it, was it more likely that like uh the symphony would be played you know on on a lawn behind a buffet line rather than in a concert hall oh sure it could so very that's, well yeah, be that's, the, that's like, the, like the, table music uh, you know 
Uh, absolutely so. I, I wouldn't find that the least bit uh, surprising to me to uh, to be carried back through time and see this in action, and that's what it turned out to be. That wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and so then, is it because in some of our correspondences, um, you, you've talked about your interest in um, period instruments and historically informed performance. Is is the very nature of performing early Haydn in a concert hall inaccurate? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, unfortunately we have little other way in, in the modern era to to uh, convey these things because a tradition developed during the 19th century of concert hall music. And most people think of nowadays uh, two things. I, I, I go to a concert hall or I, I have a, a, a recording of it. Right. Uh, back in Haydn's time when those that music was written, neither one of those things existed. There were no concert halls. <laughs> right. There, there were no, obviously no CDs. Uh, um, uh, that, that had to wait for electricity, I'm afraid. But um, this is, um, I think that period instruments, uh, you know, there were two classes of, of music. There was indoor music and outdoor music. Uh, this, this carries over from French traditions. And outdoor music uh, was frequently accompanied by woodwinds because they were louder than strings. Right. You, you're hard pressed to have enough violins to carry the sound in, in an outdoor setting. And so that's why you, you know, a lot of military music is always uh, brass and, and woodwinds because yep. uh, the, the sound carries much better. And inside and in a small, like I'm sure that even though Mortsin was an aristocrat and, and had a, a, a nice little drawing room, uh, you know, his, 13 piece orchestra that was playing these symphonies didn't really overwhelm that room. Uh, 13 pieces on modern instruments uh, can fill up a pretty big room. True. Well, it's fascinating that you say that now. This I had, and this had never crossed my mind, indoor and outdoor, because at the time of our speaking, I have been preparing um, uh, a whole week of articles on. Haydn symphonies. Based on the, uh, the listing from your website, they are 20, 17, 19, 25, and 11. And one of the things that I noticed uh, when looking at the scores, I would uh, check out the scores from the library, put on the recording, and you know, do some score reading, is that it's listed for um, you know, strings, uh, oboes, bassoons, horn, and uh, you know, harpsichord or bass, whatever. Mm-hmm. But but none of those woodwinds are ever scored, almost ever, in the in the actual score. Horns are listed separately, but they just kind of they play background to the the cellos or violas or whatever. Outdoor music that makes sense. Yes, yeah, yeah. He didn't have a lot to work with there. Uh, the, <laughs> right. the number of strings was variable. Uh, that's why they only ever put strings. He divided the violins uh, first and second. The viola was was one viola part, and then if he could get a cello and a violon and a bassoon, he was thrilled to death. He had a whole bass <laughs> word in business. Yeah, and uh, of course the oboes. He used his oboes a lot. He must have had some pretty good oboe players. He certainly had some good hornists. Uh, horns. He writes were, really high for the horn. It seems. Yes, he does. But but. Uh, 
don't forget these natural horns. Uh, if you, it, <clears throat> unlike a valve horn, uh, which has to cover the whole range of all these horns, a, a, a an alto, you know, a high horn uh, is a smaller horn with a shorter, you know, a, a narrower bore and a, and right. a shorter uh, wind column and all that. And and uh, these players, uh, that's that's what they did. Hornets worked in in pairs. One played the high notes, and one played the low notes. Right. And he scored for that. And uh, these these uh, Bohemian, uh, I would still uh, show my age. I suppose he's Czech. <laughs> Uh, Hornets were that was the the epicenter of horn playing in Europe, right? And and the best hornets in the world came from Bohemia, and uh, uh, Haydn, uh, you know, Mortzin was was actually Bohemian. He, he, uh, he of course, that was part of the uh, Habsburg Empire at the time, right? And uh, but but Haydn actually lived in Bohemia when he was with them in that period from 1757 to 1760, almost 1761. And so he had great horn players right from the beginning. And you can see that this, what he learned from that experience carried through. He, Haydn is one of the great horn music writers of all time. Sure. And he wrote fantastic horn stuff, and especially in his uh, 1760s works. I mean, that, that's the maturity of his horn writing. And uh, he had four horns. That was 25% of his orchestra was horns. <laughs> sure. So better you. So. <laughs> yeah, and he used them, he used them tremendously. And, uh, um, you know, this, this all stems from his background uh, with, with the Mortzen family in, in Bohemia. Well, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about them, because I think of, of all the people who Haydn might be associated with, it's, it's the, the prince, the Esterhazy print, you know, the, the court and all of that, that people associate with. But, but even earlier than that, there, was, you know, there were other people. Who, who is the, the Mortin family? Well, uh, they were uh, less elite aristocrats than the Esterhazys, of course. And they were they were uh, they Bohemian. They lived in Lukovec, and uh, their their closest uh, seat of power would have been Prague. Uh, but uh, of course, as part of the of the Habsburg regime, they had to go to Vienna. Also, um, they were they were a minor family of aristocrats. They had a, a, a nice uh, country seat. And in Lukovec, and and uh, they spent the summer there every year. And the whole family would pack up and move out that way, and uh, probably, you know, uh, as a as a congressman would do in the United States in the off season, <laughs> he would mingle with his uh, constituency and uh, uh, you know administer uh, however what whatever administration needed to be done there. And uh, then in the winter, he would he would go to Vienna, and. Uh, so he was a uh, he was a he was a music fanatic, as so many are, and uh, he couldn't necessarily afford to be, but he he did what he could do, which was he hired the, this young man that had been introduced to him by Baron Furnberg, who is is the man that induced Haydn to invent the string quartet. Right. They were friends. 
and uh, Fernberg couldn't afford to hire Haydn. Uh, <laughs> either couldn't Morsin, but but he didn't realize it. And uh, so <laughs> three three great years there, he had uh, probably a dozen in his orchestra, and he had a, a valet over here playing the the violin, and he had a horseman over there, and uh, but he also had. Uh, uh, some military people be, being, uh, you know, in the aristocracy, he had, he had a few guards there and they had a little band that uh, Haydn wrote field music for, uh, a little sextets for, for, uh, two oboes, two bassoons and two horns <laughs> and some nice music there. Um, by the way, just by the way, in passing, but uh, they they also would play in in the um, in the uh, little orchestra that they had in the house, and 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 in the summer and the evening they would uh, he would organize concerts, and uh, I'm sure that Haydn also uh, played keyboard music for that, and uh, they would they had chamber music. He wrote a great number of his early string trios date from that same time period, and. Um, he also did things like teaching uh, Countess Morzin how to play the keyboard. Right. Uh, she, she was a, a student of his. And uh, he probably, if there were children, he probably taught them how to play the, the keyboard. And so I, people, I guess, maybe haven't thought of, you know, I haven't thought of, this is, this is fascinating to, to hear you talk about this, um, kind of the, the ad hoc nature of a lot of this music, you know, he has, well, today we have this many strings, tomorrow we don't, and and that kind of thing. This would have been at a time where there was no um, conductor for these these orchestras, right? I mean, even in Beethoven's time, piano concertos were conducted from the piano. Yes, and, and this would have been exactly the same. He would have conducted from the harpsichord. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, especially, no matter whether it was own music or not, uh, but, he, you know, he would have given the direction, he would have set the tempo, and, you know, I'm sure that uh, given his passion for practice, that that we would have all had a, a good practice and played it through once first, too, uh, which is not necessarily a given as we would think it would be a given. Sure. Uh, a lot of times in those days, things weren't practiced, but... Um, you know the uh, the that that's a holdover from the baroque era where uh music was not necessarily written for it's for these these specific instruments it's written for whichever instruments are available <laughs> whatever you've got happen to be huh and, and and so you know today's um kind of concept of of the symphony i was just talking with a friend um about an hour ago suggested to her a, a bruckner symphony so it's you know it's four movements 70 minutes or whatever this is a concert piece that we set aside and spend a significant part of our evening focusing on in the concert hall you know that's not the thing with haydn but but we also kind of have the um that sort of troubled artist, you know, I think of like Mahler struggling over kind of developing and writing this work was, was Haydn's compositional process um, whimsical or deliberate or, you know, how did, how did well, these works come to be? It, it was certainly nothing like anybody in the 19th century would do. Sure. Uh, 
you know, and the 19th century was, uh, I saw the birth and development of art for art's sake and the struggling artists yes. and all that. This was, this, this was a non-existent thing in Haydn's time. Haydn's job was to write music. And, and if the count said, you know, we, we really could use to have, uh, a couple hours of music for tonight. Maybe one of those little symphony things you do. <laughs> <laughs> and he would say, certainly, okay. And, and they would do that. I mean, he he had the musical ideas. His head was full of ideas. Uh, up to the time he died, his head was full of ideas. Uh, you know, he told his biographers, oh, I still have a lot of ideas. I just can't write them down anymore. You know, well, that was it. I thought he had a very sad ending to his life because of that. He he, he never lacked musical ideas. He he lacked. He lost the ability to be able to put them down on paper. And, wow. Uh, but in his earliest times, he he had no challenge whatsoever. Whatever he was asked to write, he could write, and and it would be well. I mean, you would be very hard pressed to go through his entire oeuvre and find a piece of work that was just not, why did he even put this on paper? There, there, there is no, there's nothing that's that bad. Right. Uh, there, there, there may be stuff that, well, he repeated himself here, or, you know, he did this or that. He didn't really work hard on this piece. <laughs> uh, sure. He may not have even written it for uh, any purpose that we would think of today, he may have uh, suddenly, well, you know, tonight we're in a bind. We need to have something. Oh, well, sure. I've got over here, we can do this with it. You well, know, and it may have been that. And uh, we don't know. We don't know those circumstances today, but uh, certainly in, in 50 years of, of composition, that situation arose, you know, uh, sure. once in a while. And then again, though, if, you know, if it ain't broke... Well, yeah, yeah, I'm um, sure. It so, um, fascinating, though. And, and so, actually, uh, it was a couple months ago, maybe the end of last year, I had a chance to hear his fourth symphony programmed in the concert hall. Um, and and I was actually going to ask uh, earlier about kind of why no one ever programs the first, I don't know, few dozen symphonies. But um, kind of this, this all makes sense now, this idea of, you know, outdoor music and like you said, kind of background buffet line sort of entertainment stuff. But it was interesting to hear uh, the fourth symphony in the concert hall, perhaps, perhaps not at all what the composer intended, but, um, you know, it's, it's effective music nonetheless. I, I've never heard I've never heard an early Haydn symphony in concert. I, I, I would actually... Uh, like to hear what your what your impression of that was uh and also the circumstances i mean was it was it actually a, a really small orchestra or was it yes a full scale orchestra so uh we I, i'd have to actually i've got it here let me let me pull up um i'll pull up see if i can find the concert review on my blog um so it's the it's the taipei symphony who is uh, who is led by uh, Gilbert Varga, and and they do some really really. It's Tibor Varga's son, um, and and they do some really adventurous kind of programming. They've they've done you know some Bartok 
uh, suites and things, you know, some, some things that are not kind of your typical the new world symphony all over again. Um, right. Right, right. Yeah. And it was it was an earlier here we are, January tenth. It was an earlier let's see. So it was the first part of the program. Uh in fact, the, it was the same night as the Bartok, the Wooden Prince suite. So it was the first part of the program, Symphony Number no. Four in D major, uh very small orchestra. Uh and I I want to say that the players that could stand were standing, you know, aside from like the yeah, cellists. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I they understand were, that. So they were they were standing and it was very small, you know. The they were kind of swallowed up by the uh, by the stage, you know, a stage that fits Mahler symphonies and things. And the Varga loves to give kind of these pre-concert lectures. She's so excited to to talk about the music, and he said that this is what it is. He said in the first movement, I believe it was, there's there's this thing where the second violins kind of take over the first violins and pay attention for some of these details and little bits. And he turns around and gives the downbeat. They conduct and they they go. They have the harpsichord and the whole thing. Um, you know, it's a little bit, um, how should I say, a little bit vanilla, kind of a little bit diet for a giant concert hall full of, you know, 2,000 people um, in that kind of a setting where we're used to hearing hundred people perform a, a big giant meaty symphony, but it's, it's effective music. The, the symphony I believe couldn't have been any more than, you know, 10, 15 minutes long. Um, yeah. but, but it kind of, kind of was a, an aperitif kind of a, you know, uh, the beginning of the kind of the meal, because after that, um, was the Konzertstück of Erno Dochnani mm-hmm. and and then the the Bartok wooden prince suite. So two much bigger pieces. After the Haydn, they brought out a whole bunch more chairs and stands and all the rest. Um, it was all Hungarian uh, themed. The the evening was, but it's right. You know, I think pe- like you said, most people are used to hearing the the Paris symphonies, the London symphonies, the ones that that much more resemble concert work that people are used to. Um, but but this was nonetheless still enjoyable. And, and so, what what Haydn have you heard in um, in in your neck of the woods? Oh, very little, very little. <laughs> when you say neck of the woods to me, you're actually speaking literally. I live about two hundred kilometers north of Houston. And, oh, okay. And, and uh, if you if you were that far north of Houston, you would discover that you lived in the in the heavy forest area and uh, with very, very little in the way of cultural uh, capabilities. <laughs> I have seen, uh, there's, a, there's a small university nearby and I've seen the Juilliard Quartet. Oh, very there. nice. And uh, they played the Emperor Quartet and they played Beethoven C-sharp minor quartet and Bartok's A major uh, quartet. And that was a nice evening. And, oh, uh, wonderful. Yeah, it really was. It, it wow. was interesting to see the locals when we moved <laughs> from, oh, well, from Haydn to Beethoven was a major step. Of course, the C-sharp minor quartet is sure. a handful. And, and then <laughs> when we went to Bartok, to, to Bartok. Was, uh, <laughs> the, the eyes glazed over and you know it was like uh, i was the only one that stood up and cheered at the end of that one I, uh, oh i'd love to uh, hear that it, it was a great evening it really was and i've i've seen 
a few symphonies, a few of the London symphonies. In fact, uh, I saw the Atlanta Symphony uh, playing Symphony Number no. 98, which was... That's my hometown orchestra. I'm from Atlanta. Oh, really? Yeah, and actually, oh, yeah. just... So, so it's my Sunday evening for you, but so just yesterday evening for you, I believe, the Atlanta Symphony played in Carnegie Hall. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. So they were well, in... Uh, they were in your part of the part of the woods, eh? This was Yoel. No, no, I, I was in Atlanta on business. Oh, okay, okay. We uh, were done, and I had a day to kill, and I happened to see a poster that said, "Oh," uh, and it was Yoel Levy's last season there. Oh uh, wow! And uh, also Joshua Bell was playing. He played Vuitton, which I really like. Uh, I like uh, uh, romantic violin concertos and. So uh, and then they opened with with Haydn Symphony Number no. Ninety Eight, which they played with only thirty people on the stage, which I was really very very pleased to see. Even though it was modern instruments, you know, awesome. I had a fantastic seat in their concert hall. I was I was in the 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 second balcony because I got my ticket just before the show. Oh and, wow! But I was right right in the center and. Uh, right in the first row of the third balcony or of the second balcony, third floor. And, uh, the, the sound was concentrated there. Like you wouldn't believe it was, it was the best seat in the house. And I was, uh, I was very pleased with that. Had a, had a nice evening. What a small and, world it is. Yes, it is. Isn't it? <laughs> I, I like that. So, so uh, then, uh, what was I just going to say? Oh, you mentioned earlier, like just earlier in an email today, um, I have to look at how you worded it because I thought it was interesting. You said, or maybe this is a, from a previous email, you said something about how uh, I managed to avoid anything post-Beethoven. And <laughs> that, that kind of sounds like the way that someone would say, like I managed not to catch the flu this season. Um, <laughs> what's, what's, what is your kind of your, your opinion on, on sort of certainly preference for, sounds like to me, um, Haydn and Mozart and kind of classical era music. Well, yes, certainly classical era. I, I would say that my my musical roots are firmly in the 18th century. And that's going to be it for our episode today. I left that last little part of the conversation in as a teaser for uh, what we will continue to talk about in the next episode. There will be parts two and three of my conversation with Mike. Um, I thought it was interesting to hear about his preference for uh, the classical era music and specifically Haydn because it was a composer for me who I was not necessarily as interested in. So we will continue uh, that conversation in a future episode. Anyway, that's it for today. Go check out Mike McCaffrey's blog, www.fjhayden.com fjhyden.com. You can find me at fugueforthought.de, fugue, F-U-G-U-E. Uh, all of the information for Mike and for me, for Twitter, Facebook, all of the rest of that will be in the description of this episode, as well as the article featuring this episode on my blog. Got it? Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Subscribe in iTunes, leave a comment, get in touch with me or Mike if you would like to, all of that stuff. Share with your friends, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.